wanted to say a couple of things by way of introduction. Um, first of all, I just wanted to comment about how pleased I have been with this book. It's a book that I read, as you know, 12 plus years ago. Um, it, it, it sounded good then in theory, uh, and so much so that the nine marks that are presented here made, them, made their way into the first three sermons I preached when we planted Emmaus. It sounded good in theory. I think um, going back through this book 12 years later, uh, I'm just so pleased. It still sounds good in theory. Also, as I look back upon the past 12 years, I'm able to add this comment. This is good, even in practice. It has been very good to, to seek to build a church upon these biblical principles. Uh, certainly, we have not done so perfectly, but we have... Um, we have um, made an effort to do so, and we will continue to make an effort to do so. That is to conform ourselves to what God's Word says about the church. And I was um, just very pleased in reviewing these chapters, and especially uh, this past week in reviewing this chapter on biblical church leadership. I thought this is so good, and this is so important, and so very true. And I wanted to say one more time that I do not mean any disrespect uh, to Mark Dever or to Nine Marks by adding those three marks that I did on uh, the importance of confessional subscription, uh, the importance of doctrinal or catechetical preaching, and on the importance of associationalism. We feel strongly about those three things, and we think that they are very important and even vital to a healthy church, uh, but the nine marks that are presented here are very, very good. In the introduction to this chapter, which is Mark 7 on biblical church leadership. Uh, Dever does talk a bit about uh, authority within the church and how authority is perceived and really not appreciated too much in our, in our modern culture. Uh, by the way, I do apologize for the very thin outline. I ran out of time this week. And so uh, the outline is thin on paper. I'll be going through some key highlights in my book here uh, in our time together. But he does begin by stop talking about authority and how in our modern age we have become accustomed to thinking about abuse and power in the same sentence and about authoritarianism whenever we think about authority. Do you hear Dever's a concern here. In our modern era, he's seen that people really distrust authority. So whenever we hear about power, uh, we almost instantly, he says, we think about the abuse of power. And whenever we think about authority, we uh, tend to connect it, uh, at least in, in this country, with authoritarianism. And I think he's right. I, I think within our society, there is a pervasive and inherent suspicion of authority. That is to quote Dever here on page 200. But nevertheless, Christianity has always recognized the need for authority in society, in the home, and also in the church. And it's the last one of these that is the topic of this chapter, authority within the church. Uh, before I move to point one of his, book, of his chapter here, I wanted to point out that he comes back to this theme at the very end uh, by highlighting how um, a th a proper respect for authority is really taught first and foremost within the home within the home. In fact, we can see this in the Ten Commandments, can't we? Uh, where in the, in the Fifth Commandment, um, God tells us to honor father and mother. And if you remember in the preaching that I've done on the Ten Commandments and on the Fifth Commandment in particular, um, our catechism uh, helps us to see that that commandment is not just about showing honor to father and mother, but it's about 
beginning there and then they're learning to show proper respect to authorities of all kinds uh, within the home, within society, also within the church. And I bring that up now just to say that I do agree that there's a lot of distrust with authority in our society and I wonder if it's not very much connected to to the breakdown of the home, uh, to where there's so much damage done within the home uh, given the prevalence of of, um, divorce and and, and these sorts of things that that children are raised just not really knowing how to properly relate uh, to the authority that is over them. And it's, it's a problem that we need to be honest about and it's a problem that in the church and in Christ we can certainly overcome. And we need to work to overcome it. Uh, we need to be sure that we are retraining our minds to think properly about God, His authority over us first and foremost, uh, first four commandments, remember, uh, and then the authority structures that He has given to us within society. We, we need to retrain our minds. It doesn't matter if we've been raised in an environment where trust and authority, trust is difficult and authority is um, uh, questioned. Uh, we still in Christ uh, need to have our minds retrained by the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we learn to trust properly. We learn to trust God supremely. We learn to trust the authority structures that are over us, uh, not in a naive way, not in a gullible way, um, but in a healthy and biblical and wise way. Uh, And so I agree with all that Dever has said here in the introduction and in the conclusion to this chapter But the whole thing is about this, the authority that God has placed within the church. And the first thing he mentions is the congregational context of church leadership. We're talking about church leadership, about those who've been given authority within the church. But he begins by talking about the congregational context of church leadership. This is so very good. This is so very important. He wants us to see that, yes, there are leaders within the church... Uh, but that does not mean that the congregation is to be wholly passive. The, whole, the, the congregation is to be very much involved in the government of the church. Leaders have a very special role to play and they cannot neglect their role. They cannot neglect their responsibilities. They do have real power or real authority within the church. But it's not unchecked power. Uh, it's not unchecked authority. It's not they alone who have the authority, but ultimately it is the whole congregation. And so this is the doctrine of congregationalism. Uh, we are a congregational church, as I'm sure uh, you know. Dever says, um, midway through page 201, that there is no ideal constitution for a church. Um, there's no straightforward manual of church government found in the Bible But that doesn't mean that the Bible has nothing to say about how we are to organize ourselves. What is his point? Church constitutions are very, very important. I've come to love them, actually. I used to not. Uh, When I was younger, I thought, what is this about? Don't we just need the Bible? Let's just follow the Bible. Um, And we are following the Bible, but it's important for a church to be clear as to how it's going to operate. And church constitutions do that very thing. They take biblical principles and they say, Here is how we are going to operate in the particulars. Here's how we are going to apply uh, the the biblical principles that we see. Is there one uh, straightforward uh, constitution revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture so that all churches must adopt it? No. The Scriptures give us broad principles, and then those broad principles are to be applied with wisdom in each and every scenario. 
Um, I actually like looking at other churches' constitutions. I've helped other churches uh, review theirs. Um, in fact, just recently in the process of recommending uh, Course Gold Reform Fellowship into uh, membership in SCAR BC, um, one of the things that I had to do and we as an eldership had to do is review their constitution and to make some suggestions for amendments and, 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 and the cleaning up of that constitution in some way. And so I have just done this and I have come to really love our constitution. It's been refined over the years as many of you know. Uh, the passage that Dever wants us to think about, or at least the first one, is Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Now that passage is about church discipline. I'm sure you, you remember that. It's about how to address a brother or sister in Christ in the congregation who is, is sinning. Um, go to him alone, take two or, or two, two or three with you if he will not listen to you. And if he will not listen to you, uh, I want you to finish the sentence here, brothers and sisters. Tell it to the church. The matter is to be brought before the congregation. It's, the matter is not to be addressed finally and ultimately uh, by the elders alone or by the elders and deacons alone or by some committee you know, that's been formed. The matter, when there is unrepentant sin in the congregation, it's to be addressed by the, the whole congregation. And so when I say that we have a congregational form of church government, I do not mean that the congregation is involved in every decision that is made. Far from it, in fact. There are many decisions that are made by the elders and deacons alone, and this is right, and we will soon come to that. But there are some things that the congregation must certainly be involved with. Church discipline is certainly one of them. He also highlights Acts 6, 2-5, through 5, which is a very important passage. Uh, there in the book of Acts chapter 6, a situation is described to us where the, the church has a benevolence ministry. There are widows who need to be supported. And a problem arose because a complaint was brought to the apostles that favoritism was being shown to those who were Hebrews. So there was an ethnic favoritism being shown. Uh, the Greeks were being neglected. The Hebrews were being uh, shown preferential treatment. And how did the apostles, I think this is so significant, how did the apostles decide to remedy that problem? They themselves did not remedy the problem, but they said to the brethren, they said to the, the church, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So, who was to choose these seven men? The church was. They are not here called deacons in a formal sense, but it is our view that these were the first deacons. Uh, these were the first servants. Uh, and this is where the office of deacon arose from. Uh, the apostles commanding that seven be chosen to serve as uh, deacons uh, before the office is uh, formally stated. Uh, they were to wait on tables or to oversee the ministry of tables, that is to say, the ministry to those widows who are in need. What is my point? My point is that the apostles did not appoint these seven. Could they have? Yeah, I think they would have been perfectly capable to appoint these seven, to choose these seven themselves. But they put, I mean, these are the apostles we're talking about, right? <laughs> but they put the responsibility on the church to choose from among themselves these seven to serve. So here again we, we find this, 
this model of a congregational form of church government. The congregation must be involved in matters of discipline. And here we see it as well that the congregation must be involved in the appointment of officers. In this text, it is deacons who are mentioned, but in other passages, elders are to be appointed or set apart by the congregation as well. Let's see, another, another text here is 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5. through 5. This is another church discipline passage. He's dealing with someone who is living in open and unrepentant sin and even boasting about it. And again, Paul as an apostle does not pronounce judgment upon that man, uh, but rather commands that the church do it. It's, it's just a wonderful passage. He says that he has already come to his conclusions, but he writes to the church in Corinth and says, here is what you need to do. He puts the responsibility on the congregation, not on the elders, but on the congregation that was present there in Corinth. Uh, so, it is, it, it is very clear in the scriptures that the congregation is to have this responsibility. He also points to 2 Corinthians 2.6, uh, which is dealing with the need to restore a brother who was once in sin but has repented. Repented. Is it the same brother that was mentioned, or same person that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5? This person was put out of the church and then repented, and now in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is saying, the punishment is enough, receive him back. We don't really know for sure. Some have speculated that it's the same person. Uh, but the point is this. Uh, Paul refers to the uh, punishment inflicted on him by the majority being sufficient. And scholars have noted that that word majority uh, seems to be a technical word, which is giving us some insight into the fact that the majority of the congregation did vote to put the man out of the church because there was no repentance at the time. And now the man is to be received back because repentance has been demonstrated. The punishment of the majority? Well, I mean, what else could be meant by that except that um, the congregation did vote to put the man out and there seemed to be evidence, seems to be evidence here that it was a simple majority that was required to to bring about that decision. And indeed, if you read our Constitution carefully, you will see that a simple majority vote is what is required to make decisions here at Emmaus. And it is based not only on wisdom and prudence that we require only a simple majority, a 51% vote, but there is, I think, a biblical warrant for doing so. And it is found here in 2 Corinthians uh, 2.6. Um, Dever piles up, well, piles up, I don't know if that's stated quite right. Um, well, he lists other texts as well. Uh, one from Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Um, another from 2 Timothy 4, 3. Um, uh, to show that we are to have a congregational form of church government. So when we talk about church leadership, we need to see that it's in the context of a congregational form of government, biblically speaking. He makes a really neat observation here, actually, on page 205, and it's one that I'll confess I, I had not thought of, so I must have missed this, or maybe it's a part of the, uh, the revised edition that, that I didn't have access to, of course, uh, 12 years ago. I'm not sure. Um, but he says that every local church in Christendom, from Greek Orthodox to Pentecostal, from Roman Catholic to Baptist, from Episcopalian to Lutheran, from Presbyterianism to Methodist, is congregational in, in nature. So he has a very... He uses the word Christendom in a very broad sense, in my opinion. But 
I, th- I think you get his point. He's saying all of these churches are congregational in nature when, when push comes to shove. So even if they have a Presbyterian form of government or if they have an Episcopalian form of church government um, or a a very radical elder-ruled form of church government, all these churches really are congregational in nature if you think about it. How so? Well, people still have to decide to show up and to give at these churches. So even if no church vote is ever taken on anything, even if the leadership structure is very much top-down, people still have to show up and fill the pews. And they have to give in order for these institutions to continue to exist. And so that is the point that Dever is making. And I think it is quite a nice observation here. Uh, People can vote by no longer attending these churches if there are corruptions to the Christian doctrine or um, other things. Uh, Is a church a straightforward democracy though? Is a church a straightforward democracy and Dever says, no, uh, it is not. Um, what do I want to highlight here? Probably this quote from the Cambridge Platform of 1648. The government of the church is a mixed government, and so hath been acknowledged long before the term independency was heard of. In respect of Christ, the head and king of the church, and the sovereign power residing in him and exercised by him, it is a monarchy. (laughs) So there is a sense in which the church is a monarchy. Uh, Christ alone is head of the church. I I hope you remember what our confession says. That that language is found in our confession. So there is a sense in which the church is a monarchy. There is one king, and it is Christ the Lord. Quoting now, uh, continuing to quote the Cambridge Platform, In respect of the body or brotherhood of the church and power from Christ granted unto them, it resembles a democracy. But in respect of the presbytery and power committed to them, it is an aristocracy. What is aristocracy? It is is the rule of of, um, a few. Um, So in a democracy, everyone in theory has has equal power and, and vote. Yes, there might be representation, but... Um, in a monarchy, there's one who has the power. In an aristocracy, there's a, a group of people who rule. And so the Cambridge Platform of 1648 acknowledges that there's a sense in which the church is all of these things. And so Dever is trying to bring this to our attention, and, and I think he does so well. Um, God does not want us to always function as a committee of the whole. So when we talk about congregationalism, we are not proposing that the church function as a committee of, of the whole. Not every decision that's made by the church should be made by every member. And we will come to this in a moment. The Lord has, a, has ordained that there be leaders within the church, uh, that certain men be appointed to function as overseers, um, that certain men be pointed, uh, appointed to, to shepherd and, and, and to rule even. That, that language is used to describe elders. They are to rule within the church. So we cannot uh, hold to a form of uh, congregationalism that denies uh, these uh, biblical principles. Moving on now, I think, um, well, one more thing from this section 
and it has to do with, with trust again. It has to do with trust. Uh, a congregation does need to trust its, its leaders, and this may be difficult in our modern age. You've heard it said that trust must be earned, and there is a degree of truth to that. But Dever points out that this attitude is at best only half true. Uh, there is a sense in, was, in which trust must be given. It must be given as a gift, he says, at the bottom of page 208. A gift in faith, in trust more of the God who gives than of the leaders he has given. And he cites Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. On that issue of trust, uh, there, there's a lot of wisdom in this little saying here. How can you trust other people? Just forget about doctrine of the church stuff. I'm just talking about in general. <laughs> um, we're sinful, fallen creatures. Um, we, we know that. How can you ever trust someone else? Well, trust can be earned over time. It, 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 can, be, uh, it can build over time, no doubt. But how do you give it initially? I think the answer is this. You trust others by trusting first and foremost in God. You entrust yourself to Him that He will keep you even if that person breaks your trust in the future. You trust in Him that He will preserve the relationship according to His will. There has to first be trust in God in a supreme manner before we can ever really manage to entrust ourselves to other people. Are you, are you following me? So that's true of marriage, that's true of family, that's true of friendship, that's true of uh, civil relationships, that's true of relationships within the church too. It's true of the relationship between congregant and minister. Should you trust me supremely and blindly? I would probably have to say no. <laughs> I hope you trust me, uh, but I'm a fallen creature just as you are. Should you trust God supremely and in a sense blindly? <laughs> Uh, yes, He is worthy of all of your trust, for He is God. And how are you going to be able to trust me and the other elders and deacons of this church in a, in a substantial and meaningful way? Ultimately, it's by trusting the Lord that He is going to preserve us all. He's going to keep us all. So what are the biblical qualifications for church leadership? That's what Dever deals with on page 209. Uh, first of all, he does talk about the two offices, the offices of overseer and and the office of, of uh, uh, deacon, he makes the point that the office of, of overseer uh, does have many names given to it in the Scriptures, and they are all synonymous. Uh, well, let me back up. They are all nearly synonymous. They refer to the same office. That is the point. So, what are some of the names that are given to, to overseers? What are some of the titles that are given to overseers in the Scriptures? Mm -hmm. Bishop, shepherds, pastors, elders, um, and they're called to do many things too, though here I'm just asking, asking you for the titles uh, that are given uh, to them. So those, those terms all refer to the same office. I say they are, they are not synonyms. I, I, I misspoke just a moment ago. They're not synonyms because they all stress different aspects of an elder's or pastor's ministry, don't they? When you talk about a pastor, you think of, I think, one who shepherds. And so there the spiritual care that the man is to provide for the congregation is the thing emphasized. When you hear uh, the term a bishop or overseer, what is the thing being stressed except the responsibility that that man has to 
to govern the church, to oversee the church, and, and to, to, to maintain its government, and, and to lead, and, and on and on we go. He does here stress that in the New Testament there seems to be this ideal of a plurality of elders. I think it is an ideal that we should strive for. It is not always possible, but it is an ideal that we should strive for. Um, elders are often referred to in the plural, so that there are many men who do oversee a church in a particular region, a local congregation. Um, he also does admit here that there may be a distinction made between uh, the role of a what we might call lead or senior pastor and other elders. And I think he is right. Is there a separate office for senior or lead pastor that is a different office from the office of elder? We would say no. It's the same office. But you do also see mention made of how those who labor in the ministry of the Word are to be supported so as to not be entangled with secular affairs. So, there might be a uh, there might be a difference as it pertains to giftedness or capability. There might be a difference in terms of the amount of time that a man devotes to the ministry. And therefore, if he devotes himself fully to the ministry of the Word in a substantial way, he's to be relieved so that he need not be entangled with secular employment. Uh, so, it's not a different office, but there's a different um, stress or emphasis that, that is placed. Uh, and therefore a different level of support perhaps that is given uh, to a man who devotes himself fully to the ministry in this way. So there might be a main preacher, a lead elder as it were, uh, but it is the same office. It is not a different office. Okay. He talks about deacons too, and he makes a little comment in here uh, that in many Baptist churches, not Reformed Baptist churches, but different there's, there's lots of different types of Baptists, you know. Um, but he is noticing that in many Baptist churches, uh, the office of elder and deacon seems to be turned on its head. Have any of you ever experienced this? It's not a part of most of our backgrounds, I don't, I don't think. But maybe you've been in a church like this where it's actually the deacons who function kind of as elders should. Uh, they're the ones who seem to rule um, whereas they're not called rulers, they're called deacons, which means servants. Uh, so he's, he addresses that problem here, but it's not a problem really so much in, in, in our tradition. And so I won't spend much time on it. But there are two offices that God has given to the New Testament church. It is the office of elder and deacon. If elders are to rule, if they are to shepherd, if they are to lead the congregation, if they are devote, to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer, what are deacons to do? Does anyone want to say? Serve, yes. What are they to concern themselves with? What sorts of things? Physical needs, primarily. Uh, at our youth study last Wednesday night, I don't know how we got on this topic, but we did... Um, we were talking about how human beings are made up of two parts, body and soul. Isn't it interesting that there are two offices within the church that seem to correspond to those two parts of the human nature, um, body and soul? Elders are to concern themselves primarily with spiritual things, we might say, uh, and 
deacons are to concern themselves primarily with uh, physical things. Uh, And of course, there is much overlap there. We cannot strictly divide these these concerns. Um, there's, There's much overlap. But I think it is interesting that the Lord has provided leaders to His church so that whole persons are cared for, body and soul. Uh, within Christ's kingdom until Christ returns. I think it is very beautiful. I've heard it said this way that deacons, okay, two different ways I've heard it, and both helpful. Uh, deacons are to concern themselves with buildings, budgets, and benevolence. Three B's buildings, budgets, and benevolence. So maintaining church property, being sure that the church has a place to meet, uh, budget, being sure that the church has its um, monetary needs provided for, um, and benevolence would, would be. Um, Acts of, of grace or kindness shown, mercy shown to the congregation. So meeting needs in the lives of, of the, the saints in a particular congregation. Uh, buildings, budgets, and benevolence. I kind of like this uh, way of saying it better, that the deacons are to be concerned with tables. So that goes back to that Acts 6 passage that we just talked about where they were called to oversee the ministry of, uh, of, of um, benevolence for the widows. They were to wait on tables But we can talk of three tables. They are to concern themselves with the pastor's table, being sure that the pastor is provided for so that he need not be entangled with secular employment. Um, The Lord's table, right, being sure that the church has a place to meet, that the Lord's table is supplied so that the church can congregate and therefore come to the table of the Lord and and have fellowship and communion with, with Him, with God and with one another. And then with the widow's table as well, that being a symbol for um, the deacons striving to meet needs, practical needs within the congregation. Isn't that beautiful? It's, I think, a helpful way of of saying it. Um, The three B's or the the table's um, way of approaching it, I think, is just fine. Uh, He does here deal with um, the fact that in the Scriptures, it is men who are to hold the office of elder I don't know that he says that regarding deacon, but that would certainly be our view. That men are to hold the office of elder and deacon. That is not to in any way demean the importance of women, uh, but rather it is to reflect God's design in creation. uh, That God made males and females different. Sadly, that needs to be said today. (laughs) Sadly, that really needs to be stressed. God made man, male and female, and males and females are different. Uh, I have to fight against the temptation to sound really condescending and and belittling as I make that comment. It should be obvious to all. Our children can see it plain as day. If you want to know the difference between male and female, go talk to an elementary school student. They'll tell you uh, that boys and girls are different. And then within the home, uh, there is... There is a special responsibility placed upon the husband to lovingly lead and for the wife to lovingly submit. It's a beautiful thing, not something that's to be criticized. It's a very beautiful thing. And we are told that it is to reflect the relationship between Christ and His church. Uh, Done right and done well, it is a thing of beauty to be celebrated. Um, And that same same, um, structure is found within the church too, where men are called to lovingly lead as they are, some of them are called to hold the office of elder and then deacon. And the women in the congregation have an incredibly important role to play. 
I've stressed this before. I won't even stress it now because I might be perceived as sucking up to the women of the congregation or something like that. But we, we do, we, we have some marvelous women in this church, and anyone who knows anything at all about this congregation knows that the women here are very strong and they are a great blessing to the congregation. This is not demeaning at all. And so we must continue to insist this that it is men who are to hold the office of elder and deacon within Christ's church. The next section, Endeavor's book on page 214, the bottom of it is the charismatic nature of church leadership. And here he's not talking about charismatic in terms of supernatural experience, uh, but rather the word charisma in the Greek simply means a gift of grace. Uh, here he stresses that elders and deacons are a gift to the church, and also elders and deacons, if they are to hold this office, need to be uh, gifted by the Lord to do so, and called by the Lord to do so. Uh, there are qualifications that are set before us concerning the office, offices of elder and deacon in the Scriptures uh, that we cannot ignore. In 1 Timothy and Titus, there are qualifications that are, that are listed. By the way, this is how we know that these are offices, that elders are not those who are older, and deacons are not just simple servants. We are all called to be deacons in this sense. We are called to serve one another. The word deacon means servant. So there is a, a sense in which we are all deacons with a lowercase d. But that deacon is an office is made clear by the fact that qualifications are set forth in 1 Timothy and Titus. So to hold the office of deacon, you need to meet these qualifications. And of course, the same thing is true of the office of elder. To hold the office of elder certain qualifications need to be met. Some of those qualifications are moral in nature. Uh, the man needs to show that he is above reproach, that he is able to manage his own household, that he is faithful uh, in, in things. Um, so some are moral. We will not go through them in detail for the sake of time. I trust that you're familiar with them. But some have to do with giftedness as well. Uh, those who hold the office of elder and deacon need to have particular gifts um, elders need to be apt to teach. They need to be able to defend the faith. Uh, and so those cannot be ignored. Uh, sadly, I think these qualifications are oftentimes ignored in churches, or at least dumbed down very badly. Uh, so that out of a desire to just have officers, men are thrown into these positions, perhaps Hastily, Don't the Scriptures warn us against laying hands on someone soon, too soon? And, and, and that is a reference to uh, appointing uh, men uh, to the office of elder and deacon. Uh, do we need elders and deacons? Yes. Should we desire a plurality of elders and probably even deacons? Uh, yes, we should desire it. But we must be careful not to appoint men to these offices in a careless manner. 2.18, Christ-like the Christ-likeness of church leadership. Here Dever um, talks about how leadership is to be conducted within the church. And he uses an acronym, and it is the acronym BOSS. And first, in fact, the B, refers, uh, the B in BOSS stands for BOSS in his structure here. You can see a diagram on page 219. The O uh, stands for out front. The S stands for supply. And the second S stands for serve. I think it is a fine model. I don't like these church leadership books very much, and so I kind of cringe whenever I see this sort of thing, acronyms and diagrams. But 
the point is well taken. Uh, church leadership is to be Christ-like. And so is Christ a boss? <laughs> he, is He our head? Does He have real authority? Yes, He does. He has real authority over us. Uh, does, did He lead in such a way where He went out front uh, so that He did not uh, go into battle in the rear, but rather He led the charge in, into battle by showing the way forward, by living as a model for us, uh, by leading uh, us in life and even into the new heavens and new earth through His suffering? Yes, He went out front. Uh, does He supply all of our needs? Yes, He gives gifts to men. Doesn't He? Having ascended on high, He gave gifts to men so that He not only leads us, but He supplies us with all we need to do what He has called us to do as His servants. And then we might ask, was Christ a servant? Yes, this was probably the most distinctive and radical aspect of His leadership, right? He did not lead as the world leads, by commanding people what to do, but rather He, he put on the garb of a servant and He washed His disciples' feet, saying, As I have done to you, so you also are to do to one another. Uh, the point is this, not that we are to wash one another's feet literally, but that we are to serve one another. And this is what Christ required not only of all Christians, but He did this with the apostles, with the disciples in the upper room. And so He was saying this to the church, the leadership of the church is to be marked by this, selfless love and servanthood. Uh, so that church leaders are not to lord it over the congregation, but rather they are to lead humbly as Christ led. So I think the acronym is just fine. It works. It actually is very good. I guess I just have some issues from the past that I need to shake off uh, e even still. Okay, a wonderful section here. And then lastly, the relationship of church leadership to God's nature and character. The point that is made here is really quite simple. If you despise authority, you need to think about that. Uh, because God has authority over us. God has authority over us. Christ has authority over us. And so we cannot really despise authority as a Christian, at least not in a way that is consistent with our profession of faith. We need to recognize God's authority over us, Christ's authority over us. We need to recognize what He has commanded uh, His church to be, and, and that there is authority within the congregation. We cannot fight against God in these things. Uh, but rather we must see that in fact in the church we have a kind of reflection of God's very nature uh, where God lovingly rules His people and there is that sort of thing present within the congregation where there is to be loving leadership, loving ruling that takes place on behalf of the elders especially and yes even that very important office of deacon. Okay. A lot of great stuff in this chapter. I hope that you either have read it or will read it. I think you'd be greatly encouraged by it. We have a few minutes for questions. Maybe I should do it this way every Sunday, right? Where I have a sparse outline and uh, we have time for questions. Tom. Jesus is referred to as rabbi, but you never see rabbi again in the New Testament, like in referent, like like as a term that's applied to elders. I don't know. I don't think so. I don't. I wouldn't make too much of it. And I am trying to think of the Greek word that is used uh, to describe pastors as teachers. It's not rabbi, uh, but that is because rabbi there is a noun and not a. And not a verb describing action. I, yeah, it's a good question, Tom. I, I wouldn't make too much of it.
if anybody else has thoughts on that, you can certainly share. Any other questions? Did I miss anything here in my rapid overview of this chapter, Tom? Uh-huh. That's a great question. You know of churches that follow the Moses model. What would the Moses model be? Anyone want to describe the Moses model? Dictator. <laughs> Dictator. Well, yeah, I hope it's not with that spirit. Um, um, but yes, uh, some will say we're going to follow the Moses model. Remember, he was the man, right? He was the leader uh, that led Israel out of Egypt and, and into the wilderness. And then he was exhorted by his father-in-law Jethro uh, to not do all of the work himself, but to delegate, right, to uh, to elders within Israel and, and to share the workload. Is there a wonderful leadership principle uh, communicated there? Yes, there is. <laughs> but to take that leadership principle and then in, to import it into the New Testament church as if it were uh, the form of government that we to our, uh, were to adopt would be completely inappropriate. Uh, to do so, we would have to ignore what the New Testament says about church government and the congregational nature of the church that has been set before us even, even in this lesson today. In regards to the First Timothy and Titus you know, references to deacons, how do we square that up with Phoebe being referred to as a deaconess? I wonder what the original Greek says. Oh, good question. Yeah. There's a translation issue with us, not with the original. Right. So Ryan just asked, what are we to make of Phoebe who's referred to as a deaconess, a, a, a woman who is a deacon? The same Greek word can be used either to describe one who is a servant in a generic sense or one who holds the office of deacon, which is characterized by service. And so it is the context that has to uh, d dictate how the word is being used. And, and our view would be that Phoebe was, was indeed a faithful servant within Christ's church. This does not mean that she held the office of deacon. And when you go to the passages that list qualifications for deacons, you see that it says quite clearly that it is men who are to be appointed. Yes, and there are things said about the wives of deacons in that passage, that the wives are to be faithful as well. But I think the reason is this, that when a man is devoted to the office of deacon, he is going to be called to meet, think about it, he's going to need to help meet physical needs within the congregation, and that's likely going to often involve his wife, for it would not be appropriate for that man to go and to himself meet all of the physical needs of the ladies in the congregation. I think that's one reason for it. There's another view that, um, and here's another thing, the word for wife and woman is the same in the Greek. And so it's context that determines what is being uh, spoken of here. But there is another view that there are to be male deacons, but that within the church there were uh, a group of, there were often a group of women who were identified as helpers of the deacons. Not office holders themselves, but servants alongside uh, the deacons. And in fact, in that passage that talks about widows being enrolled in the number, there may be a hint there at widows functioning in that capacity in the early church, that not only were, they, were their needs met, but as their needs were met, um, they also did serve the church in a very pronounced way. So it is not that they hold the office of deacon, but that they do have a, 
a very pronounced and particular role as servants within the congregation. These widows, you know, they were they were left destitute. The church supported them, uh, fed them, uh, housed them, and in return, they would serve the church in a very pronounced way. That does not make them deacons or office holders, but it certainly does make them servants. I think that's what's going on. Uh, when and again, we're not biblicists. We need to read the church, the the scriptures in a in a, um, in a theological way. Uh, in other words, we need to bring all of these texts together. I think that's the dynamic. So, so Phoebe might have been one of these who did serve the church in a very pronounced way, but did not hold the office of deacon, properly speaking. I like the doctrine of the church. I really do. I love it. Barb. It just in what you're explaining, it seems like uh, basic membership of a church has become too easy or too flippantly taken in our day and age. I'm a member of this church because I did this, this, and this. But maybe not yeah, are you drawing that observation? Are you making that observation from kind of this whole study, yes. including this chapter? I think it's a good observation that membership in the church, you said maybe it's too easy, or and then you said um, approached in a flippant manner. Yes. I think I like the, the flippant uh, word because. Membership in the church need not be easy or hard. It, it need be biblical. Who should be received as members of the church? Christians should be. <laughs> Full stop. You know, it, it's those who have Jesus as Lord, who've obeyed Him in the waters of baptism, who have made a credible profession of faith. These are the ones who should be received into the membership of the church. No matter if they are weak or strong, no matter what color their skin is, no matter how much money they have, etc., etc. The standards for church membership just need to be thoroughly biblical. It's those who belong to God through faith in Christ Jesus who are to be received as church members. But you're right to say that it's been handled flippantly because I think oftentimes no effort is made whatsoever to discern a credible profession of faith. It is come just as you are, full stop. And that's a big problem. Come just as you are, there is truth to that, some. Um, I think a better statement would be, turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and come. Yeah, you're still a mess, got it. You still struggle with sin. Your clothes might be ragged. You might smell funny. I, come just as you are in all of those senses. <laughs> I'm sorry for being crude, right? Come just as you are. You don't need to clean yourself up and attain to some level of maturity or perfection to come. But it's, it can't be come just as you are, full stop. It is turn from your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and join yourself to Christ's body. Amen. Yeah. And then we'll walk together. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you implies that people can come even though they're messy still, even though they have a lot to learn. But it is Christians, followers of Jesus, who are to be received into the church and not the world. And so a distinction has to be made. And you're right, very often in our modern day, that distinction is not made at all. It is just come as you are with nothing more said. And that's a problem. Yes. Okay.
Now we're over. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, this study this morning, but also for this whole study. It's been such an encouragement to me, and I trust it has for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us clarity of mind concerning these things. May we have very strong convictions concerning what a true church is and also what a healthy church is. But I pray also that you would give us tender hearts, that we would be patient and gracious and kind to others, O Lord. I pray that we would remember how far you have brought us in our view of these things, how gracious you've been to us. May we be gracious to others as well. We pray that your church would flourish for the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.